I think that there's two big areas that were real game changers. One was actually this team-based approach, which is kind of interesting because I employed it not really with an eye towards necessarily monetary growth, but more freeing up time and having more flexibility. But as we just discussed, it's incredibly efficient. And so that's a big game changer. And that's an area that I find some of my colleagues in small firms resist. And then the second piece is investing in marketing. And that's a very bad word in some legal circles in my practice areas. In criminal defense, it's very unusual for firms to market, especially firms that handle kind of more serious criminal cases. But I've definitely seen a return on that investment and it takes time. And for me, it's taken trying different things and having multiple different initiatives. But in those two areas, both in building a team-based approach and also marketing, investing in those areas really are what grew my firm. Welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. What if you could hang out with successful women lawyers, ask them about growing their firms, managing resources like time, team, and systems, mastering money issues, and more. Then take an insight or two to help you build a wealth-generating law firm. Each week, your host, Davina Frederick, takes an in-depth look at how to think like a CEO, attract clients who you love to serve and will pay you on time, and create a profitable, sustainable firm you love. Davina is founder and CEO of Wealthy Woman Lawyer, and her goal is to give you the information you need to scale your law firm business from six to seven figures in gross annual revenue, so you can fully fund and still have time to enjoy the lifestyle of your dreams. Now, here's Davina. Today, I want to introduce our sponsor, Noble Marketing. Over the last four years, Noble Marketing has tracked more than 250 law firms and discovered 60 to 80% of new client calls were generated through Google My Business and Google Ads. Basically, you need to be on Google and Noble Marketing can help. I recommend them because they have an incredible guarantee. Your campaign will be profitable in three months or less, or they will work for free for an additional three months. If they fail after a total of six months, they'll refund your entire investment, including ad spend. If you could use more qualified leads, I encourage you to reach out to Ronnie Deaver at noblemarketing.co. Mention you heard about them here on the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast and Noble Marketing will waive your setup fee, instantly saving you up to $2,500 or more. And now on with our show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and today I'm here with Miriam Arrington Fisher, and I'm super excited to have her here because she is a seven-figure law firm owner and runs a woman-led law firm with, I think, mostly women. I think you may have added some men to your firm recently or something. We're going to get into that, but she is a trial attorney. She's an author. She's a speaker. And she's on a mission to make the legal profession more accessible and rewarding for working mothers. And as I said, she is a seven-figure law firm owner based in Richmond, Virginia. She founded and built this law firm. I think you started out after a divorce starting this. And so you've really built this as you've grown your family. You've got three kids now. So I have so many questions for you and want to learn so much. So welcome, Miriam. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Good. So why don't you tell me about your journey to becoming a lawyer? Was it something that you always knew that you wanted to do? Or is it something that you got an opportunity and you ran with it? Or what was it like? 
Well, I think I had a pretty cliched path to law school. I was, you know, definitely the kid that was found the courtroom dramas really compelling. And from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer and specifically a trial lawyer, sort of that high drama. I used to spend a lot of time with my grandparents after school, watching the courtroom dramas, the Perry Mason, Matlock, things like that. And so I kind of set my sights on that from an early age. I had parents who did that, (laughs) not grandparents, parents. So when did you decide to go to law school? What year did you go to law school start? I went straight to law school. I was a real type A planner. I took extra classes and graduated college early and went straight to law school. And I graduated 14 years ago. So I came right out of law school and worked as a legal aid attorney, public defender. After a few years, made my way to a small criminal defense firm and uh, worked as an associate there for a few years. And what led you to leave that? Did you leave and start your firm or did you leave and go someplace else? No, I left really out of necessity. You mentioned this in the intro. I, I've i heard the term accidental entrepreneur before, and I think that's a perfect word to describe me. I really wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a trial lawyer, but I really did not have a vision of owning my own business. In the first part of my career, I really enjoyed being in the courtroom, trying cases. That was really energizing for me. After I'd been an associate for a few years at this firm, In the course of one year, I had a baby, I got divorced, and there was some organizational changes going on at my firm. And so it basically all kind of came together in basically a one-month period. I had a newborn and I was divorced. I was a new single mom. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks that I couldn't sustain the schedule that I had been keeping, which was very hard charging, lots of late nights, travel, trial prep. And all of a sudden now I was a single mom with a newborn. So it just kind of came to a screeching halt and I had to figure something out on the fly. Wow. That is a lot of pressure to go through all those things because on the list of stressful events in life, you know, it's death, divorce, giving birth, all of those things. And you had some major and losing a job. So you had three of the top 10 major stressors in your life at that time. In retrospect, it sounds really crazy. I think at the time I just was sort of acting out of necessity. So I just started a firm, not necessarily the way that I would recommend. And I know not the way that you teach of having a lot of strategy and forethought. Unfortunately, in my case, it was a necessity. But I just found an office and I had my laptop and I kind of went from there. Yeah, I think a lot of women in particular, women law firm owners in particular, wind up starting a law firm out of necessity because something happens in their life. Generally, this is a very general statement, but just based on the number of conversations I've had through the years, a lot of women do it when they start having children. And they start looking around going, wait a minute, this traditional version of being a lawyer doesn't work for me because I need more flexibility because I have children and I need to make that happen. And in your case, being a single mom, I'm sure that was really important to you with a newborn on top of that. So how did you continue in the same practice areas? So I did. At the time, I had been doing primarily criminal defense. That was what I had done at my previous firm. And I didn't leave under bad circumstances. I really liked the people that I worked with. And so I had a good network. 
I took some cases with me and I kind of, for the first early years of my practice, I kind of just kept doing what I was doing, but it was very shoestring. I was in court during the day and then I was trying to squeeze in client meetings and still get to daycare by five o'clock to pick up my daughter and sort of making it work that way. And so how long did it take before you began to hire help? When I first went into private practice, I had this arrangement, which is very common for small law firms, where you kind of just share an office space with a bunch of other lawyers and maybe share a receptionist, that type of thing. So I started off there. It took me about a year to realize that there was a lot that I needed to learn about business and hiring and really start to become strategic about it. And that was all completely new education for me. I had not gone into entrepreneurship with a plan. And I really didn't know how much I didn't know until I was doing it. But I would say within the first year, it became very clear to me that I needed to hire somebody. And at that point, I didn't really have growth as my objective. It was more kind of survival. I felt like I was treading water. So my first hire was a paralegal who did both you know, strictly paralegal stuff, but also some of the administrative work. And from that first hire, it started to kind of slowly click what I now know, which is, you know, you need to leverage time and grow a team. But that first hire was really the starting point. Did you struggle at all with thoughts or fears around how am I going to pay this person? Oh, absolutely. And I will even go so far as to say that I still feel shades of that anxiety every time I add somebody, you know, I've added practice areas, you know, since then hired attorneys. And even now I feel a sense of responsibility when I take someone on, but certainly with that first hire, I felt an enormous amount of responsibility and anxiety around it. And how did you go from that fear state of mind to actually just pulling off the mandate and doing it? What process did you go through to sort of get there? Do you remember? You know, I think part of it is my personality. I'm very decisive and perhaps an optimist. And I just went for it that first time. And I didn't have, you know, any kind of benchmark of like six months expenses in savings or things like that. At the time, it was very shoestring, but I just really took the leap that first time. I didn't actually do as much planning around it as I might now. I mean, I think that's normal when you're just starting out and you're trying to figure it out. You know, you're you're just like, I've just got to do this and make it the right decision for me. You know, mm-hmm. you knew that you would pay her regardless, right? You make that right. level of commitment, right? How long did it take you after that first paralegal hire to hire a lawyer? I didn't hire a lawyer for another two years. So I hired the paralegal, the first hire that very quickly showed me the power of having a team and delegating and leveraging because as scary as that first hire was, it showed me what was possible. And so for even just having a paralegal or having somebody else to do some administrative work, what that allowed me to do. And so I actually hired a second paralegal the following year. And then after that, my next hire was an associate attorney. That was probably the biggest leap for me to hire an associate attorney, because when I started the firm, I had this vague notion that I wouldn't have associates. I didn't want to overcomplicate things. I thought that if I was leveraging legal staff, that I could be the only attorney. But that was earlier in my career when I really didn't have sort of growth goals.
goals. And it was more about being sustainable. Once I realized what I could do when I had paralegals on the team, then I started to realize what I could do if there were other attorneys on the team. I think that's a huge epiphany to have that. And I thank you for sharing that because I think until you experience it and see what it's like to have associate attorneys working for you, you don't really get it. It's one of those things you kind of have to do to get it. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's something that is the common thought with most women law firm owners is that sort of there's a difference between hiring staff and hiring attorneys. We question whether or not I'm going to be a good boss to another lawyer or to are they going to know more than me? How am I going to manage them? Did you go through any of those thoughts or feelings about it? Well, I did. So my practice areas are very litigation-based and court-based. And so, you know, my image of myself as a lawyer had always been the person trying the cases and I really did like it and enjoy it. But that was really the most challenging and least flexible aspect of my practice. And so that was really the area that I needed the most support in. So when I started thinking about hiring associates and I hired my first associate who's still with me, who's really an excellent lawyer. One concern I had is how are clients going to deal with that? You know, I think sometimes as lawyers, we get very invested because of how much responsibility is on us. It's almost kind of like it can only be me or I'm the one that has to try this case or the clients expect me I was happy and maybe a little humbled to see that my clients actually accepted other <laughs> music attorneys. It's <laughs> not just me. Yeah. <laughs> you speak to something that I think a lot of solo attorneys struggle with when they start to hire is how and my clients want me. They hire me. They tell me that they want me. And a lot of clients do do that. They do say, I want you. How do you handle it? So, you know, you start speaking in terms of we and the mm -hmm. team and I right from the beginning, right? So how did you handle that to communicate to your clients that it wasn't going to just be you now? There was a team and they might have another lawyer managing their case. Did you change the way that you spoke to your clients about your law firm? I absolutely did. And I've gotten much better at it. I think that there are sort of a lot of conceptions that clients have about when they hire a law firm and they think that, you know, if it's an important case, the big guns are going to handle it and, and the name partner. So even though we have other lawyers at the firm now, you know, I'm Miriam Arrington, it's Arrington Law. They know that I'm the boss. So there's this kind of misconception that if a case is being assigned to another attorney, it's not important or and so we dispel that from the beginning. And exactly like you said, a lot of the language that we use is a team-based approach. We talk about that even on our social media. We try to feature other team members so that it's not just all my face in the marketing and the advertising. Our representation agreements contain a lot of language about a team-based approach. And so we put that out there from the beginning. Another thing that we do is we have a client care team and so in kind of the traditional model, you know, how I came up as an associate was, you know, clients were always making appointments to talk to the lawyer. But after the initial intake and, and strategizing, a lot of client communication is done by our non-attorney client care staff. And so what that does, in addition to freeing up attorney and paralegal time, it also gets the clients used to the fact that other people at the firm are going to be helping them responding to their needs. Um, and then they just, I find that's very effective in helping people feel comfortable overall. Yeah, that's terrific. That client care 
specialist or team of client care specialists that can help provide that high touch experience. I think a lot of times lawyers think we have to be the ones to provide the high touch. The clients are going to want to talk to lawyers every time they call. And really that's not the case. Clients just want to be heard and want to know that there's a human being there and somebody's helping them. And, you know, that can really free up a lot of attorney time to have that. How many people do you have working for your firm now? And kind of give me a breakdown of client care team, paralegals, attorneys, like how many do you have? Sure. We have 10 full-time people. So there are, including me, there are four attorneys. We have two paralegal assistant who supports the paralegals, an intake specialist and a director of operations. So the operations and intake side do most of the client communication and responding to questions and things like that. Those are our full-time in-house people. We also have live support virtually to take overflow calls and after-hours calls and things like that. And so they help on the client side of things. So when you say intake person, is that somebody who is signing clients up or are they scheduling consultations? How, what, what is their role? So that is one of the newer departments, I'll say. We added that in the last year. And so we've been refining that. Over the years, I've experimented with different consultation type procedures. You know, you want to maximize consultations, but not have non-attorneys giving, you know, advice and things like that. So what we do now, which is working really well for us, is we have initial intake over the phone, which is kind of a very friendly customer service forward screening to you know make sure that something is within our wheelhouse, a, a part of our ideal clientele or case types. Some cases from there are able to go straight to sign up. If it's very clear, you know, if somebody is charged with a crime in our city, we can help them. If it's something that is going to be more nuanced or maybe it's a civil claim, then it'll be scheduled for a consultation with an attorney and then operations does the sign up. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me because so many women law firm owners fight me on this. And that that is that you can have non-attorneys who sign up clients. Is that something that it took you a while to sort of come to that belief or thought? You know, it's really interesting that you say that because I've felt for a long time like that would be the best way to do it. And over the years, I've done different programs and masterminds. And you're exactly, my experience is the same as yours. Women lawyers really fight that. So for years, I've been hearing, you know, you can't do that. It has to be an attorney. And for in a lot of different things, I've looked to the personal injury bar as kind of a source of being on the cutting edge. You know, if you think about it, personal injury lawyers were some of the first lawyers that did marketing and they were first on social media. So uh, yeah, I spoke with different colleagues of mine in personal injury and I just said, you know, how do you guys do your intake? And that's what they do. They have phone screening and, you know, the attorneys review the notes and they sign them up. And so we adopted that model. You know, there's always going to be the really unusual, interesting civil case that comes in that maybe requires a little bit of additional steps. But I think by and large, it's the way to do it. Does it ever feel like no one wants to work? I hear that a lot from women law firm owners who have been trying for months to hire good employees only to be frustrated by the lack of qualified applicants. If that sounds like you, check out my free training, How to Hire When No One Wants to Work. In this training, I share with you my five-step hiring blueprint so you can create an effective hiring system and hire your million-dollar team, even in a tight market. 
The link to this free training is in the show notes. So go click on it now to access the training immediately. And now back to our show. I think where people miss the understanding is that the purpose of a consultation from the standpoint of a law firm is analyzing whether or not this is a good fit case. So can you have a non-attorney analyze whether or not it's a good fit case? You can if you have very clear criteria for your analysis, right? And you train somebody on that. And then like you said, when you get something that's not typical in your firm, then that may be where you kick it to a lawyer to provide the on-the-fly analysis because we have the skills to look at it from a legal perspective and see, is this something that our law firm can handle or not? So very interesting. And I'm glad to hear you say that you have this team in place because I think that also gives a lot of time back to your lawyers, you know? It absolutely does. And, you know, I don't remember where I read this originally. I don't know who's the author of this, but you know, having any employee on any business and any team, having people kind of operate at the top of their skill set. And so, you know, all the roles in our firm are important, but it just doesn't make sense. If somebody can be in court trying a case, it doesn't make sense to have them, you know, at the office doing drafting. By the same token, if somebody can take 10 minutes and screen a case and, you know, they can be signed on the same day, it doesn't make sense to have them wait a week to come in and talk to an attorney. Right. Absolutely. So tell me what the shift was that you think made the difference between being a six-figure firm and a seven-figure firm? I think that there's two big areas that were real game changers. One was actually this team-based approach, which is kind of interesting because I employed it not really with an eye towards necessarily monetary growth, but more freeing up time and having more flexibility. But as we just discussed, it's incredibly efficient. And so that's a big game changer. And that's an area that I find some of my colleagues in small firms resist. And then the second piece is investing in marketing. And that's a very bad word in some legal circles. In my practice areas, in criminal defense, it's very unusual for firms to market, especially firms that handle kind of more serious criminal cases. But I've definitely seen a return on that investment and it takes time. And for me, it's taken trying different things and having multiple different initiatives. But in those two areas, both in building a team-based approach and also marketing, investing in those areas really are what grew my firm. Right. From a marketing standpoint, you said you tested a lot. I think a lot of women law firm owners kind of struggle with that a little bit because testing requires investment and it, you may not always get the return because you got to kind of find out where your people are, where they're hanging out, where they're connecting and responding. What is your favorite marketing platform for your firm? It's kind of interesting because one of the ways that I've overcomplicated my life in my firm is having different practice areas. My practice areas are criminal defense, civil rights, and immigration. And I have to market differently for those practice areas. And it's kind of like a puzzle, you know, finding out who you're marketing to and where they are. If you have one practice area and one kind of target client demographic, that's going to be one approach. My ideal client in my immigration practice is very different many times than my ideal client in a you know civil rights case. So social media has been important across the board, but some platforms are more popular in some communities. But I think social media is a given. We advertise on the radio for our immigration practice. We advertise on a Spanish language radio channel in our city, and I've seen a, a phenomenal 
return on that investment. But I think maybe I wouldn't see that in my other practice areas. And, you know, I still do a lot of like the in-person kind of traditional networking across my practice areas. So colleagues on the criminal bar know that I'm an immigration lawyer and vice versa. That's been very effective. And I've also, about two years ago, I hired somebody to be on my firm, a non-attorney. She's a marketing and a community outreach associate. And she's constantly looking for ways that we can be involved in the community, which is nice to do as a member of the community, but also does have a return in raising our profile. And so we've done that. We've sponsored local events, uh, organizations, nonprofits, things like that. So you can see that when you kind of list it out, it sounds a little scattered. It sounds like we're all over the map, but really it's building a presence across different channels and in different markets. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound all over the map to me. It sounds very thought out in terms of you probably had times where you tried marketing in this and realized we're not really getting a return on this because this is where our people are hanging out. We thought maybe they were, but they're not. So it sounds like you've probably gone through some experimentation to find out what works for your different practice areas. Oh, sure. Sure. I've learned a lot of lessons through, you know, money spent or time spent on things that didn't pan out. And it also changes too. You know, every time, you know, a couple of years ago when we started social media marketing, there was no TikTok. And so then it was like, okay, there's a new platform we need to get on. We need to figure that out. So it's kind of ever evolving too. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting. It's really great for people to hear this because I'm always talking about the investment required. Like to grow a law firm to seven figures, it requires trust and investment, trusting yourself, trusting other people and investing time and energy and money in experimenting a little bit. So you're taking risks. Do you find you're a different person now than the person who started the law firm? because of all the risk take, like would the person who started the law firm take the kind of risk that you take now? That's uh, that's such an interesting question. I am definitely a different person. And when I started the practice, I didn't have the vision of what my firm is today. So it's not like it was a, a straight line, you know, of something that I was consistently working towards. My own vision evolved. I've evolved along with it. And the confidence that you gain from kind of going through all those peaks and valleys and having months where you're like, how am I paying the bills to then, you know, turning around and hiring more employees. It's given me confidence to take those risks and to continue to grow and to kind of look at what's going to be the next thing for us. What's the next hire, you know, that kind of thing. So you have written a book called Mom's a Lawyer, and this is a handle that you have on Instagram, Mom's Lawyer, and a brand you've created. Who did you write the book for? The book was really inspired by something that I read, which was a 2021 ABA study, which found that about 30% of women lawyers leave their legal careers during their 30s and 40s, largely due to childcare, child raising, family responsibilities. And that number seemed really shocking to me because, you know, law is a career that we worked really hard for. It's not a job that most people kind of end up in. And so to leave at what is for many people, either the height or kind of the beginning of the height of the career was, is really shocking by the same token. I totally got it because I, you know, had some real crisis years right around that time for the same reasons. And so I thought back about a sort of how did I make it all work to the extent that I made it all work because, you know, some days you feel more in control than others. And for me, the only path that 
I saw was entrepreneurship and was really being in the driver's seat. It's not because it's easy to own a business. It was, it's very difficult to own and run a business, but it puts you in the driver's seat. And so you can take control and kind of balance things as you need to. And so the book is for other lawyer moms who are either struggling to balance it all or wondering how they can whether they're currently in a traditional legal job and they're struggling to balance it, or maybe they have stepped out of the workforce and they'd like to step back in, in a way that's feasible. So what I would love to see in our field is more accessibility, normalizing, being a working mom. And so that was what motivated me. So tell me what some of the challenges were with being a mom of young children and starting your firm. I know it is something that it is, it's discussed a lot among our community, the wealthy women lawyer community, and the challenge of, you know, being a mom to young children who are infants, toddlers, school-aged children, and trying to do it all while starting a law firm. How do you balance that? How did you balance that? What resources did you put in place? What systems did you put in place to kind of help you do that? So I think a big part of it starts with us and boundaries, and that's easier said than done. Cynthia Golden, who's a Harvard economist, wrote a book and she referred to law as a greedy profession, you know, meaning it's a profession that demands a lot of us of our time and our energy more so than some other professions. And so I think in the legal community, in traditional jobs, certainly, there is an expectation that you're going to be a workaholic, that you're going to be totally committed. And it's sort of become this, you know, cultural trope of working all the time and taking calls and just being harried and exhausted. And so I really pushed back against that. And it hasn't always been easy because it's the minority view. And even still, I have to do that. Sometimes that means telling co-counsel that I can't meet after three or I don't work on the weekends, those sort of things. So part of it that I would love to encourage other women lawyers is to have the confidence to do that so that we can begin to normalize it as a field. Certainly that will benefit people who aren't moms, but for me, it was very critical for that reason. And also looking at a more progressive and modern way to run a firm. A lot of the things that we've touched on during this conversation, you know, having a team-based approach, delegating so that things are not all on the lawyer. I think that they all can really go hand in hand to give women more of that alignment. Do you find that because I certainly am teaching law firm owners how to grow their law firms. And you as a law firm owner have created a business that supports you and your lifestyle. Do you find as a boss that you are doing the same things for the lawyers who work for you? Because I think that comes up a lot in discussion for women law firm owners is, you know, if I'm building this business to serve my needs and my life, can I also do that for my employees? Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that because that is something that I, it's kind of a hill that I die on sometimes in conversations with colleagues. And I really do try to walk the walk. You know, I have employees, some are parents, some aren't, and it doesn't matter. Obviously, everybody deserves the same work-life balance, but I'm just sort of personally familiar with some of the kind of critical needs that happen when you're a parent. But you know, things like paid parental leave, generous paid vacation leave. All of my employees start off with five weeks PTO every year. 
you know, when schools are closing, closing during the holidays and they are challenging. I mean, I won't sugarcoat it. You know, we just had the holidays and my office was closed. I gave my entire staff off. And, you know, of course the phones are blowing up all week and, you know, we have overage coverage. And so it's not, you know, pie in the sky, but I do think that we also should hold ourselves accountable as women business owners in sort of, you know, making room at the table, as they say. And I think that the more women that start businesses and start law firms, I'd love to see kind of a trickle down approach. You know, women know what women need. And so offering employees the same options that we have. And so, yes, I do think that's really important. And that's something that I try to be really mindful of. And frankly, I'm very outspoken about it. And, you know, my staff know that I'm outspoken about it. So I believe and I hope that if I was doing something in my business that wasn't aligned with that, that somebody would call me on it. So how does that affect the bottom line? That is the question, because that's the traditional male-dominated sort of model that is the legal industry, that is big law, is based on this idea that, you know, the reason we work this way is because of the money, because that's how it's set up to make money. But you're a seven-figure law firm owner, and you're showing that this can be done. Tell me how you feel that that's worked for you. So I think that is certainly a valid consideration for business owners. One area that I really think the investment pays off is the quality and longevity of my team members. In the current environment, there's a huge amount of turnover, especially with non-legal staff. I mean, you know, the great resignation. And and I've certainly heard that from colleagues in the legal fields. I have really a team of all-stars. I have uh, very little turnover. And I invest in my staff and I see a return, a human return on that investment. So I think that that is a big factor that business owners don't always consider when, you know, you're looking at an output and hours worked and billable hours. Of course, we do everything flat fee, so we don't do the billable model. But I think that being a good employer and having a good culture, if done correctly, pays a return in human investment. Have you had any trouble hiring Or have you had a need to hire? Have you had people long enough that you were kind of hired before the great resignation and they haven't resigned? Or in Virginia, is it difficult? I've got clients all over the country who are struggling to hire just because they're just not getting any applications from candidates. So it's interesting because a couple of years ago, what would happen whenever I was ready to add a position, I'd list a position and I'd be inundated with right. you know all the applications. Right, right. You're trying to give yeah. them all these hoops to jump through in the ad to how to so you can wean some of these people out before they ever get the resumes on your desk, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's like, what am I even looking at? And now it is more challenging. I just recently hired a paralegal position. It was definitely a different ballgame. There's you know less applicants. I did something differently this time, which I've never done before, which was I worked with a recruiter. What they had told me was that the unemployment rate in the legal community is like less than 1% right now. And so essentially, I'm repeating what they told me, that essentially hiring is poaching. And so I chose to work with a recruiter because I felt like in this environment, it's a very important position. I wanted a professional kind of handling that piece for me. But I also conferred with, you know, with them and with some financial people and, you know, to make sure that the compensation is on par, that the benefits are appropriate. And we did ultimately find a really excellent candidate who I think is going to be a good fit. But 
it is more difficult. And I hear from a lot of my, you know, lawyer, mom, law firm owner friends that they are struggling. And I don't know if there's a really easy solution, but I have to believe in the way that I've always approached it is if you have a really good culture and your compensation is appropriate, that you can find a fit that way. But I also know that I don't take my current team for granted. And so I think investing in keeping people is really important in a business. It's a really critical strategy right now, for sure. You know, it's been really disheartening to hear some of the stories of hiring people and they're just not good. They don't work because that's the only ones looking for jobs out there right now, like you said. So before we wrap up, if you had one piece of advice that you would give a woman, whether mom or not, wanting to start her law firm business, what would you tell them? What was the one thing that you wish that you had known maybe at the beginning? I wish that I had surrounded myself with like-minded colleagues earlier. And what I mean by like-minded colleagues is other women lawyers who are interested in entrepreneurship and growth I have found that to be incredibly important, but I I kind of didn't discover that for a few years. And looking back, if I had done that right off the bat and really prioritized investing in professional development and self-development, I think that my trajectory would have been smoother and quicker. I often say the same thing about mine. I wish that I had the resources that are available to lawyers now because When I started my firm, Facebook was three years old. I mean, there just wasn't the things that we, all the people on social media that we see now and all the coaches and the material and the podcast, all that kind of thing, just wasn't a thing, right? And I always look back and say, I wish I had had that support earlier. And when I look back, I think there were some resources available, but they would have been cost prohibitive to me at Mm -hmm. that stage of my business, or I would have thought they would have been. So I think it is definitely a great time right now to start a law firm because since social media, there's so much more accessible since podcasting information is so much more accessible. You're not having to go buy a bunch of books, read a bunch of books to try to figure things out. Right. And there are a lot of communities that people can be involved in. So that's great advice. I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you being here and sharing your story. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I think it's going to be one of our better podcasts because to be able to go on this journey with you from starting out in the circumstance you did, you know, with this three incredible stressors all at one time, (laughs) and then to grow, that was in 2016. And here we are in 2023. And you've done that in that short amount of time to go as far as you've been able to go with building your firm. And I'm sure much more great things are on the horizon, right? I hope so. I hope so. That's (laughs) the plan. I always have the next thing planned. (laughs) So tell us where we can get the book and where we can connect with you on social media, your website, those kinds of things. Sure. So my firm is Arrington Law. It's at Arrington Law and we're on all the platforms. The book is called Mom's a Lawyer, and that is uh, titled under Mom's a Lawyer on Instagram, Facebook, all of that. It'll be available on Amazon, and that's where people can find me. All right. Wonderful. Marion, thank you so much for being here. I have really enjoyed it, and I hope you have too, and I hope to hear more from you. Thank you. It was so much fun. If you're ready to create more of what you truly desire in your business and your life, then you'll want to visit us at WealthyWomanLawyer.com to learn more about how we help our clients create wealth-generating law firms with ease. 